Well, last week we were in Palm Sunday, and of course Christ was on a donkey. He came in, he went in and out of Jerusalem a couple of times, he went to Bethany where he stayed, he cursed a fig tree which pictured the sin and fruitlessness of Israel. Uh, <clears throat> he, um, he partook of the Passover feast, made it into the Lord's table on Thursday and Friday. He was arrested and um, went under, went undergone uh, six trials that were all illegal. He died on the cross, was buried. And Saturday, the disciples mourned, and then Sunday, he was resurrected. And um, first people to really see him were women who were at the tomb. I'm not going to read the first uh, 12 verses, but just to allude to them in a couple of ways, they tell about what takes place before Christ meets these men on the road. That is such a well-known story. And um, one of the things in verse 6, he says, He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. And he goes on to say how that he would be crucified and rise on the third day. So that message was already out there before these men encountered Christ. These were messages that were already there. And then in verse 11, it goes on to say, These words appeared to them, that is to the disciples who were hearing about it after they found the tomb empty, and about the fact that he was going to arise, which had already happened, seemed to them as nonsense, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb to see if he was there. And of course he wasn't. Now we come to verse 13 through about 35 where we'll go today. This is the second appearance. The first appearance was to these, to these women, which I just mentioned and didn't really read about much. Mary Magdalene was the first one. But we come now to the second appearance. And actually it's the first appearance before men that we see in this passage here. I'm going to read it a little bit at a time because it's a little bit of a long passage and then we'll be able to gather the truth that's from it as we go through it this morning. I think we would have to say these men were slow to believe. They didn't understand. And I think we have to confess just a little bit that we are slow to believe or have been slow to believe or maybe are slow to believe at the moment. And that's the question and the title the message as well. So starting in verse 13 through 16, we see how these men were confused by our Savior. They were confused by the Lord and what they heard. It says that, verse 13, behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. This would have been the day that Christ was resurrected on. It would have been Sunday. But this was afternoon because it was morning when he was resurrected. They'd heard about some of these things, two men. We don't know who these men were except for the name of one who was Cleopas. They were not apostles. They were just part of that group of, uh, of believers who were following Christ. They were They had seen his miracles. They had come to believe that he was the great Messiah that they were looking for. And they were following him. But then, of course, everything turned bad. Their Messiah ended up getting arrested. He ended up going to a cross and dying and put into a, a tomb. And then they heard something about this fact that the tomb was empty. They didn't know where he was. They hadn't seen him necessarily. And so it says that they were on the way to this village. And they were talking along the road. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem to the northwest to get to this little village called Emmaus. And uh, they were walking along, probably took a couple of hours to walk there. And um, it says that very day, which would have been the day that Christ was resurrected. And so they were really, really struggling. They were sad. We have to say that they were probably very sad knowing what had happened and not really knowing how to, uh, how to deal with all of this. There's grief in their minds and hearts, I think. And verse 14 says, and they were talking with each other. They were, they were chatting, just two guys going along on a road. They were chatting, chat, excuse me, chatting about all the things which had taken place, which we would assume referred back to the earlier part of the chapter, which I just briefly mentioned. 
Mary Magdalene had found the tomb empty. We know the stone had rolled away. And there were other others that came briefly too, and they found it empty too. And one of the women had seen Christ, and briefly that was about what they knew. They didn't understand it though, these men didn't. Verse 15, Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began to travel with them. He's traveling. Now, on that road that you walk on, there would be a lot of people traveling. That was a common thing. Sunday afternoon was probably a nice time of the year, nice time of day also. It was warm and comfortable as they traveled along like the picture that we put at the beginning of the message slides there. And they... and the. Jesus suddenly appeared. He suddenly started walking with them. He suddenly came up from behind them. They didn't have, probably didn't really notice that he was, he was there. And uh, he had already appeared to someone else, but that was not totally clear in their minds either. So it says in verse 16, as they saw him, uh, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Prevented. Somehow, miraculously, they were prevented, I believe, is what it is saying there. Uh, why was that? Well, maybe so that they might not be too surprised when they realized it was Jesus. I mean, some people get pretty excited. Imagine if it was Peter, and he suddenly saw that he would, he would just kind of go out of his mind just a little bit, be uncontrollable. But no, they couldn't see him for who he was. Or might have been prevented so that they might talk more freely about their confusion and uh, eventually, as they talk with him, realize their own ignorance and lack. Or it might have been so that Jesus might convince them of their skepticism and, and stupidity and unbelief because they didn't seem to accept everything that had happened. They were very much, very much saddened because the Messiah was gone, whom they were hoping would really just liberate all of Israel. And so they were really down. Remember what Jesus' favorite phrase in describing his apostles was and his disciples was, O ye of little faith. In his ministry, that was his favorite phrase to describe them. Well, I really believe it was simply because Christ prevented them from seeing him. It was a miraculous kind of thing. The Lord can do that. And there was a purpose for that. We don't know why Christ does it. He is obviously sovereign in everything he does. God is always sovereign in that way. He did have human physical features as they walked with him. They probably didn't think too much of that. But he was also, in some sense, in part of his glorified form. And so he could just show up any place without having to really walk, but he was walking with them because they were there. He was in his resurrected body. And that picture is just a little bit about what it'll be like for those of us who are believers and have repented and turned to Christ that someday we'll be in heaven with a new body, but it will be a body. It will be something like what we have now, but without the problems. Hallelujah. I like the, uh, the old poem, reminds me of this, uh, Footprints in the Sand. Most people know that about a lady who dreamed that she was, she was walking alone on the beach with the Lord and she noticed as she went along there were, there were footprints in the sand which clearly represented Christ walking with her. But sometimes in her dream she wouldn't see footprints and she wondered about it. And then the little poem goes on to say that when she was in her times of suffering and anguish, that's when she didn't see the other footprints. And of course, the poem concludes by the Lord saying to her um, that when she didn't see his footprints, or her footprints, it was because she was being carried by him. Being carried by him. So, that's a touching story, and it's just a poem, but it describes just a little bit about these men. He was walking with them. They didn't understand that totally, but he would be understood soon enough. Then we go down to verse 17 through 24. 17 through 24 now really uh, helps us see just a little bit about their confusion, and I call it understanding their confusion as we talk about that briefly here. It says in verse 17, 
that he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Now, he obviously heard them. He obviously knows all things. But he's asking them a question because he's evoking an answer that will help them understand a little bit about themselves. And they stood still, looking sad. They were stunned a little bit about the question. Was not he aware of what was going on? Verse 18 says, One of them named Cleopas, that's the one we know for sure his name, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? It is a question that is really amazing to them that they would have to ask that question because certainly he would know these things. They were talking about the triumphal entry, I am sure, the cleansing of the temple, the fig tree that was cursed, uh, the miracles that Jesus did, the teaching that he did, how he was arrested, how he went to court, so to speak, and how he was crucified and now resurrected. They were going home because they thought the whole thing was over. There was no Messiah. He didn't qualify as a Messiah any longer because he had died on the cross. But things have changed. Well, I think that Jesus walked into this situation on purpose, and he walked into the whole situation of, of course, um, the Passover feast where he was uh, eventually put on a cross because this was the best time in history for him to get the message out of what was going to happen. The best time for him to be to be put on a cross and to die and to be resurrected because the resurrection changes everything. Changes everything. Josephus, a great uh, historian, he was a Jewish a Pharisee, 37 to 100 AD, right at the end of Christ's time. So he knew all about a lot of these things and heard much about it later witnessed the fall of Jerusalem, and it is recorded that 256,500 lambs were used one year in Pentecost. He recorded that in his writings. If the equation is right, that it was about 10 people per lamb, that would mean that there were about 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the event. From all over Israel and other places, and they would see what would happen, which was already to history now. Judea was there, Galilee was there. These were all witnesses of what would take place for the Christ here. And they're asking this guy, don't you see what's going on? They don't recognize who it was. But the word got out, the word got out and would continue to get out. Verse 19 tells us a little bit about their limited understanding in this whole thing, which is really a key point you need to pay, pay attention to here. It says in verse 19 that he said to them, what things? Like, he didn't know anything about it. What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene from Nazareth to the north, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word, in the sight of God and all the people, in other words, the people were very much enamored with him, sometimes for the wrong reasons, but they certainly were interested. Verse 20 goes on to say, And how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death. All the things that had taken place just in the past couple of days. And crucified him. They were hoping, that is the men here, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. In fact, all of Israel pretty much Hope for that, but these two guys especially so. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. That's what these two men were saying. Turn to Jesus. It's now the third day since these happened. They knew something about the third day, but they didn't fully understand it. It was said to some of the disciples. It was Old Testament prophecy and so forth. So, that they say it was the third day it was true because this was the third day. It was still Sunday and he was crucified 
um, six after uh, in the evening, the day before, and was put on the cross, taken off the cross, and then put in the grave, and then resurrected early Sunday morning. And this is Sunday afternoon. So it's still part of that third day, which goes from sunset to sunrise. Perhaps a kind of sarcastic comment. A little bit of sarcasm here, I think, perhaps. It's the third day, and he's dead. But we hear all these stories. What's going on? Well, Jesus listens as they reveal their hearts and long for him, but he's not there. What do these men know about Jesus at this point? Let's just think about it from what we've read. They know his name is Jesus. Not that Jesus is standing before them, but they're thinking of this guy as somebody else. They know his name. They know he is from Nazareth. They know he was a prophet, mighty indeed and word, and that he would was pro, uh, promised to redeem Israel also. They were confused about this tomb thing that they had probably heard about also, we read about in the earlier part of the chapter. He was crucified, and on the third day, he was to rise from the dead. Christ told the twelve at the feeding of the 5,000, and it told them privately about this whole thing that was going to happen. In Luke 9.22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. They were to know that, and they still were confused about it too. And I believe these two men were as well, obviously. He told the twelve privately, again in Luke 18, 31. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit on. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day... He will rise again. So that was Christ's own teaching to his own disciples. These are the guys that are supposed to know what was going supposed to know what was really going on. Verse 34 says, But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. They were as I say, slow to believe, which is a phrase you see in this text also in another place. So, why didn't it happen on the third day? It did happen, but they were cynical about it because they didn't know where the body was. Verse 22, verse 22 now goes on as they talk, but also some women among us were amazed. They amazed us. And when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find the body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of the angel and said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said. But he... They did not see. So this was just so hard for them to grasp. This was uh, Some of this was mentioned earlier when he appeared to Mary. They don't seem to say it right here in this text, but there's just a little bit of confusion going on with them in this whole time there. Why didn't Jesus reveal himself to these men yet? Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Well, Jesus wants us to believe the truth as it is in Scripture, and that's what he wanted them to do also, but they didn't seem to grasp all that they should have known. They were slow to believe. They didn't know some of the basics. John 4, 48, So Jesus said to them, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. They always wanted signs and wonders before they would believe. And Jesus did many of those kinds of things. They were to authenticate who he was. 
But if he just spoke the truth, if he just quoted the Old Testament, that probably wasn't enough for most people. Luke 16, 31. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. That's interesting, isn't it? Talking about the Old Testament. Moses and then the prophets. They won't listen to what they've got to say about this event. Rising from the dead will just create more questions. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to someone here, he says, because you have seen me, have you believed? That's a question there. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. He's saying those who just simply believed on what the scripture said. That's where we are in this generation and all those since that time for 2,000 years. Blessed are they who just simply believe. Not everybody gets the opportunity to actually see the risen Lord. We come down to verse 25 through 27 now. They begin to recognize their own problem. And perhaps it's just a little bit like us. If you're struggling with who Christ is, is he God? This is a good place to be. In verse 25 now, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now the prophets actually said quite a bit. People say, well, the Old Testament's kind of confusing. But if you read it and study it, you find it all kind of fits together. They say that about the book of Revelation, too. But it's most commonly asked for book, it seems like, when it comes to preaching. I preach through it three times myself. Each time it gets a little bit better and a little bit easier because it all fits together more as you study it. Foolish men and slow of heart. That's the slow to believe part right there. To believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, that means the Messiah, that's the word for Messiah, really, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? So this is Jesus speaking to them. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. <clears throat> Now, he doesn't really identify himself, yes, the scripture does, but he doesn't identify himself to them yet, but he explains to them from the scripture the things that they did not understand. They were foolish men. That's what it says. Oh, foolish men. That's what Christ says as he um, sort of uh, adjusts the thinking a little bit there. <laughs> because you didn't believe all that the scripture said. <clears throat> Obviously, they knew some, but they didn't have it all. They had holes in their theology. They had some spots that weren't filled in, or they weren't aware of, in other words. So it didn't seem to fit together, and it didn't make sense to them. Thus, he calls them foolish. In essence, he was calling them fools. Lots of Old Testament messianic passages such as in Isaiah where he talks about him suffering, the suffering servant. We know that's a real key one. Um, but they had these holes in their theology and they just couldn't uh, integrate it all. And, and perhaps they were just a little bit lazy about their Bible study also. Are you ever lazy about your Bible study? Ever lazy? Do you, do you read the Bible? Do you listen to the Bible? Do you study the Bible? Do you pay attention in church? Do you take notes? Or do you expect someone to spoon-feed you? There were holes in their thinking and in their understanding of the Scriptures. But it was the Jews who were first given the words of God, the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and the books of the Law, and the Prophets, and, and, uh, pro and also the poetical books. But they had set them down and added a whole bunch of rules to them. I'm not saying that these men specifically did that, but certainly that was the direction that the culture had gone, and it, co and it also confused the people. They didn't have all the truth, so they had a skewed view of what the Messiah was about, thinking it was someone who was going to liberate them from the Romans. 
By the way, I've heard it said that cults really get started this way because they don't have a full view of what the Bible says. Even though they may claim to be Bible-believing people, there's holes in their theology and that's why they end up being cults. Very dangerous thing. And some mainline denominations have good theology and they sort of dismiss parts of it eventually saying, well, that was for that time, it's not for this time. And therefore, they actually do the same thing. They do the same thing. So, Jesus says that they were foolish, but they were also slow of heart. It wasn't just a logic kind of thing. It wasn't just a a head kind of thing. It was a heart kind of thing here also. And uh, very much so. It is a heart issue when we come to Christ. It is logical also. There's that aspect of it, but certainly that was missing also. They needed the whole counsel of God, ultimately. Like Paul, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders and gave them the whole counsel of God and spoke about that. In other words, you need to know the whole thing. Not just a little bit here, a little bit there, but you need to have a grasp on it. And every Christian really should be too. Maybe not as much as the pastors, obviously, but but that's what they're there for, and that's why we're here to help. The whole counsel of God. So Jesus explained the scriptures here now, and um, the Greek has the idea of sticking close to the text here as he goes through kind of uh, a list, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Um, He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. That's, that's pretty major. Now you say, how could he do that? With all the books of the Old Testament makes up more than the New Testament, clearly. Well, I believe that it was in a summary kind of fashion, but it was an expository way of dealing with a summary of those texts. And there have been people like Apollos, who was in Ephesus. He knew only the Old Testament when he came there. Of course, he was corrected by the, uh, uh, the apostles there and taught the rest of the story, and that made him really a powerful preacher then. So what did he probably say? I I like to think about that as I go through the Old Testament. It doesn't tell us except the basic areas that he would have touched on. I think it was the most amazing expository message, probably the most amazing one that's ever been preached, and I wished I could have been there, really, really do. He probably spoke of the seed of woman, who, uh, whose heel was bruised in Genesis chapter 3, seed plot of the Bible, or maybe the blessings of Abraham to all the nations in Genesis chapter 12. Wow. The high priest was this Christ after the order of Melchizedek in Genesis also. It fills in the blanks. The man who wrestled with Jacob, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the voice from the burning bush that spoke to Moses. I am who I am. The Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 and the prophet greater than Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. There was a prophet greater than Moses, as great as Moses was. This is him. The captain of the Lord's army that Joshua met. The ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth. The son of David who was the king greater, who was a king greater than David the book of Samuel, and the suffering Savior of Psalm 22, the good shepherd of Psalm 23, which Our Lady's Bible study is currently going through. That's really Christ. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the wisdom of Proverbs and the lover of the Song of Solomon, the servant high and lifted up and and marred more than any man in Isaiah 52, where we have the great passages about the suffering of Christ. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53 also. When you go back and read 53, that's what the ancients thought that referred to. And it wasn't until after Christ came on scene that the Jews began to reject that interpretation. The princely Messiah of Daniel, who would establish the kingdom that would never end. They must have been amazed as they heard all those things and as they walked along seven miles, I don't know how far they were in the journey when they picked up Jesus, but it would at least taken them a couple of hours as he began to explain these things. But they still didn't know it was Jesus. 
He's just a good teacher. This guy really is something. He's amazing as they listen to him teach here. Amazing. I wonder how many times has the Lord taught and pointed the way as the Spirit was speaking to us through his word. And the problem with these guys is they didn't have a good theology. They needed to nail it down and not just a few verses. Well, point number four this morning here is really in verse 28 through 32 here. 28 through 32, seeing with eyes open now. Now there's going to be a dinner meeting and they're actually going to realize who Jesus was. He's still walking with them. They still don't know who he, who he is. It says in verse 28, they approached the village where they were going and he, he acted as though he were going farther. It's a little village. We really don't know where the remains of this village is, but we know pretty much kind of where it was. A lot of those villages are pretty small, and with time they just sort of disappeared off the dust of the earth, and others came up, but about seven miles. And, uh, and Jesus implied that he was going to walk a little farther. It was nightfall now. It was, it was the end of the day. And uh, he didn't want to bother them. It was a kind thing to do. He wouldn't want to push himself upon them. Verse 29 says, But they urged him, they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. They want to give him some reason why he should stay there. They urged him. Probably they thought, This is really some interesting things he said here. We'd like to know more about that. <clears throat> so he went in to stay with them. It says in verse uh, 29 and verse 30, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. So the tables were not like ours. They were low to the ground kind of thing. It actually pretty much was just the, the floor and uh, had a very small table if it was there. They would sit on the floor, no chairs basically, and recline on a kind of a mat there. And so he reclines there in the normal way that uh, these kind of people in this uh, generation and in this culture would have a meal. He reclined as if he was going to stay there and he took some of the bread and he blessed it, he prayed for it, and he broke it, which means he would open it up so he could give parts to them and began giving it to them. Now you might say, wow, this would perhaps be a reminder of the Lord's table. I don't think that they knew about the Lord's table because that was where the apostles were. Unless the word somehow got to them, they would know about Passover and perhaps this would be similar to that. But I don't think that's really what's going on here. It's not implying the Lord's table because he doesn't mention wine. But it does seem to indicate something about just the fact that he's, he's a man. Jesus is a man. He wants to eat with them. He's with them there. He's got fellowship with them. And he was kind enough to pray for it and give some of that to them. They have grown to be closer friends with him at this point. And then in verse 31. Verse 31, their eyes were opened. It's passive there, the word to be opened. In other words, they were opened by the Lord, not by themselves necessarily. Just like they were not able to understand at the beginning because their eyes were closed. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Can you imagine that moment? The Messiah with these two just ordinary guys. Not apostles, not any kind of key people in Israel, lived in a small village outside of town, seven miles. They recognized him, they recognized Jesus, and he vanished from their sight, just like that. As far as we know, Jesus didn't need anything. There they were. <laughs> there they were. The word, um, the word vanished is aphentas. Ah means without like a phantom is kind of the idea, phantos, and um, where we get the word probably phantom from, and uh, he just disappeared like a phantom. They couldn't see him. Wow. Pretty amazing. 
Now what do you think you would do if you were in that place? You've got all this Bible teaching. You've just gotten a whole survey of the entire Old Testament. It all seemed to make sense. You listen. You're hungry. You invite him to come in and sit down and eat with you. And he does. And then he vanishes. Where does he go? I don't know. He didn't have to walk, really. He would just appear someplace else, which he did. He would appear. This is, the, this is the second appearance of Christ. The first one was to women. The second one was to men. It's always interesting that it was to women first. Congratulations, lady. That's a, it's a good compliment. They saw him first, even though they perhaps didn't know for sure who he was. But it was men, and it was just ordinary men, that saw him second here. Jesus appeared like a man. He had an earthly body, but he also had a glorified body. And in some sense, they didn't quite grasp that. They probably did not see the marks on his hands, although others did later. They perhaps were covered by, uh, by uh, the clothing he wore. Certainly, it wouldn't have been bloody. It would have been clean clothing. But in a glorified state, he also had something different about him, and he could just move from one place to the other. Just as at the ascension, just go to heaven, where he would then wait for us. Pictures, an interesting picture for us. And then there's an after-dinner discussion here, an after-dinner discussion that we see in verse 32. And they said to one another, Jesus is gone now, he just vanished out of sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scripture to us? Their hearts were burning when he was explaining and teaching the scripture. It was a scripture really that probably caused them to have heartburn, we would say. Spiritual heartburn. They, they were excited was the idea. It wasn't really about knowing who he was because they didn't know who he was then, but their hearts were burning just by the scripture that was read and taught to them there. And they remarked how they had desired to be with him there. Oh my goodness, it must have been something. Jesus is gone now, it's dark outside, they might have eaten, it doesn't say anything more about that. But there was this conviction in their heart about the ministry of the Word of God. That's why the Scriptures are so important. That's why expositional preaching is so important. And Jesus modeled it perfectly in a summary kind of fashion there, which is a one way to do it. Let me ask you, do you have spiritual heartburn? When you hear the scripture, does it get you excited? It should. I know when I study the scripture, I look at a passage that I'm supposed to preach on, and I don't see much there until I dig in. When I dig in, I begin to see things. Oh, little things, little things like we saw here. All the scripture and what Jesus said to them in their own burning of the heart, just things of like that when you think about it and who these people were and what the time of day was. But does your heart burn? Or are you slow to understand? Are you slow, really, to believe? You know, if we understand the Scripture, we'll grow a lot faster. We'll be a lot better off. And that is part of a, part of a lesson that really comes from this. Now, in point number five, verse 33 to 35, the last little part here, I want you to note what happens here. Now they're going to proclaim that he is alive, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven. And those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. The fact that they got up in that little village of Emmaus, that very hour, the very hour that they saw him vanish, we don't know if they ate, they surely were hungry, it was dark outside, basically this time of year was fairly cool at night, they went all the way back to Jerusalem, seven miles, and just imagine going back to Jerusalem in the dark, because sometimes there were robbers on those roads, but they didn't pay any attention. They just headed back because they were so excited. Their hearts were now burning within them because they knew it was the Messiah. 
and they went back and they found the others. In some cases, they were still hunkering down. They were in quarantine, some of them. They were afraid the fact that they might die also because the, Jesus was killed on a cross. But they were in quarantine, self-imposed, so to speak. And, and they approached these people and they said, The Lord is really risen and has appeared to Simon. So, uh, they're telling us a little bit about what took place. Not sure who Simon is. Probably Simon Peter. Maybe he was there. Maybe he wasn't. Or maybe it refers to a different time that they heard about. But he has risen. He has risen indeed. And they began to relate their experiences. Verse 35 says on the road, what happened is they were walking along and then suddenly he came up and they didn't know who he was and started asking questions. By the way, that's said to be a good way to teach, is to ask a lot of questions. And then eventually he went over all the Old Testament. They told all that story and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. It wasn't until the breaking of bread that they really understood who he was, but it was their eyes that were opened by Christ, I believe there. The whole story, the whole story comes to a conclusion here, really. The book of Luke, which we won't touch on here, goes on to tell of the next appearance in Jerusalem, of course, and uh, where he appears and shows proof of his hands and feet and has dinner with them. Astounding, really. It's more of the story. In fact, over 40 days, Christ appeared to many, many people, small groups, large groups, and of course, even a group of 500 at one time. So, if there was any doubt, there wouldn't be after all of this. And, and 1 Corinthians 15 gives a great, great picture of all of that and really why we should be thankful for the resurrection and the promise we have in that and how it should motivate us as the last verse of, uh, of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So what can we learn on the road to Emmaus here this morning? What can we learn for ourselves what can we learn about being slow, really, to believe? What can we learn so that we're not ending up as fools because we really don't know enough. We know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to really know the truth and be on the right path. Too often, we only know enough to be dangerous. What can we learn? Well, number one, I think we can learn that we are often blinded by our own spiritual ignorance. Our own spiritual ignorance. And that's really kind of a message there. We can't see the forest for the trees. And we're confused by things. And Thomas was kind of like this. Thomas was like this, I think. Um, it was really not until the resurrection that he really began to see the light. But it took him a long time. And it took these two men a long time also, as the majority of people, it does take a long time. Think back about your own life. I don't know about you, but in my life it was a little bit different. I'm thankful that I had the scripture from a child. And those verses, the Ten Commandments especially so, and the story of Moses, did have a great impact on me. And so I don't think I probably tended to doubt as much as many do, but I didn't have all of the tools there yet until I began to study and grow in that. And I found that really by going to church and Sunday school and, and then eventually going into the ministry after seven years in secular work as Coast Guardsman and so forth. Uh, they had some of the truth, but they didn't have it all. They were missing. And since they had some of the truth, but they didn't really try to get it all, they were really fools, Jesus said. We have to ask ourselves where we are in all of that. We miss the important stuff. Well, many people call themselves Christians for various reasons. Maybe because they went inside of a building called the church and uh, sat through the services and left and on and on, but they don't have much theology. They sometimes prefer just kind of fun stories, light stories, short stories, so they can get home in time for dinner and on to other things. They don't have the full picture. Full picture. 
So we can be blinded by our own spiritual ignorance. We think it's this way or we think it's that way, but we really don't know why. Number two, we should find out why. Number two, Jesus was resurrected and his resurrection is the key event of history. I just want to make that clear. It's the key event of history. I wrote about this in my blog this week, one of the blogs this week. It is the key event really in all human history. Of all the miracles he did, it is the one that is the crowning miracle because he resurrected himself. But he had resurrected other people. Um, we know of that in a couple of cases in his life and ministry. Lazarus was one. But to do it to himself is a far different story, especially in the conditions. Without it, Christianity would not be worth the paper that the Bible is printed on. It wouldn't last. The four Gospels would not have been written because who would want to waste time writing a story about something that wasn't really true and then risking your life for it and dying for it as the apostles did. Um, and they were not necessarily all fishermen, but fishermen are not necessarily all good writers, but they did pitch in. And we have the four Gospels and then we have other New Testament books. The Apostle Paul, one was adamantly against Christianity, but it was the resurrected Christ who appeared to him and convinced him, mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Three times. Furthermore, all the massive number of miracles Jesus did during his lifetime were important and good, but without the resurrection, they really wouldn't be worth much because that's the key one. If the resurrection never happened, then the apostles would not have been willing to go to the ends of the earth and spread the gospel and then die for it. Doubting Thomas was pretty slow to believe. He's known for that. Doubting Thomas, he always was doubting. He wanted to see the wounds and so forth. He was an unlikely candidate to become a missionary, and we don't know where... We don't know in Scripture where all of these people went, but we know from what we would call tradition, and it's kind of a form of history, but uh, we can't say that it's on the same level as Scripture, but there are stories about these people. They did go places. Thomas went to India, it is said, and if you go to India today, which I've been, in southern India, there's a crypt. They say was Thomas's, and it's still there today, and supposedly he's in it. I found it interesting because one night we went to dinner with this young Indian couple. We had a family, a very nice family. I just wanted the opportunity to eat in a home of uh, some Indian folks. Really love those people, their accent, and they all speak English. It was easy to communicate with them. Christians really excited about the gospel. And uh, their name was Thomas. And I, during dinner, asked him about that. Mm, that's interesting. Your name is Thomas. And I knew that Thomas came to India, according to tradition, they said, yes. And in India, there's a lot of people named Thomas for that very reason. So isn't it interesting that that crypt still stands there and that it's mute testimony to the gospel and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ because people are still going there and people are still seeing it and encouraged and naming their children Thomas. That was their family name there. And then number three, Christ is still seeking even us if we are slow to believe. You might be slow to believe. You might want to give up. Don't give up. Dig in. Dig in. It's a good time to dig in and get to know the scriptures. Christ explained the Old Testament and the New Testament we have today. We have the whole counsel of God. And the resurrection is really part of the gospel and it's key. And that's what we are celebrating today. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4 says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. It's Apostle Paul saying this. It was once against Christ. But when he saw the resurrected Christ, it changed him. So now as he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I'm making known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, you've got to believe in the gospel to be saved. You've got to believe in the gospel to be saved. 
And also, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. The death on the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. Resurrection. And Romans 10 and 9 and 10 makes it very clear once again how important the resurrection is even in our salvation in understanding what salvation is. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, oh, that's the resurrection, isn't it? You have to believe in the resurrection. You will be saved. You will be saved. Are you saved? Do you believe in the resurrection? You can't just believe in Jesus as a great teacher. You have to believe in the fact that he was raised from the dead before you can be saved. It's an important part of your salvation. Many people have come in churches over the years, taught that message, come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God who was raised from the dead. And they're baptized. Death, burial, resurrection also is a picture of that. If we can be of help to you, um, please take time to fill out the guest form on the homepage there of the church website and let us know of your presence and watching the service tonight, today. And, and if you have questions, just mark it down and, and we'll be glad to get back to you. And we just pray that you would have a blessed Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Easter message. We thank you for the centrality of it in the Gospels and the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, it's, it's clear. There would be a resurrection of Christ. And hence, the promise of the resurrection for us as believers down the road. Hence, the promise of things changing. Hence, the promise of overcoming the fear factors of the, the virus we are now facing. And other things down the road we don't even know about yet. Because Christ died and took our sin and gave us his righteousness and was resurrected. We have that promise also. May God bless each one who's heard that message today, we pray. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.